This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Good evening. I'm Ron Burgundy, and this is what's happening in your world tonight. Live from Joe's Bob's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is my favorite holiday, National Comic Book Day. Of course, like any rational human being, I'm doing two things. I'm uh, wearing my Spider-Man onesie, and uh, two, I'm introducing you to a woman who's basically superwoman and wrote a philosophical guide to life in the age of overwhelm. Today, we welcome the author of the best-selling book, Am I Doing This Right?, Colleen Bordeaux. In our headline segment, is the gender gap narrowing in financial advising? Should you look for a female or male advisor specifically? We'll tackle that. Of course, we'll also throw a lifeline to one lucky caller before we'll hear my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are also in footed pajamas but could never be considered superheroes, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-J-
You're also, you're used to doing everything, but if you're struggling to get through your to-do list, HoneyBook can and will help. Go to HoneyBook.com slash SB for 50% off, 50% off your first order. We're saying people, Benjamin's already OG, and we have not even begun. We got a great show today. We got Colleen Bordeaux here. This philosophical book, one of the best books I've ever read. For people, whether you're just starting out in life, in business, with your money, or you just don't feel like things are going the right way, Colleen does such a great job here breaking it all down. Am I doing this right? What a great name. Uh, We'll say hi to her, but first we got a couple headlines, so let's get moving. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our first piece comes to us from CNBC Make It. Uh, This is written by uh, Sam Dogan. Sam, by the way, who also writes at Financial Samurai. And we haven't done... Never heard of him. (laughs) Nobody knows who Financial Samurai is. Uh, We haven't done anything by Sam on the show. And it's not that it's not good. Sam always writes uh, pot-stirry kind of stuff. But check out this one, OG. Sam writes, it now costs $350,000 a year to live a middle-class lifestyle in a big city. Here's a sad breakdown of why. He says, here's a sad reality. In order to raise a family in an expensive coastal city like San Francisco, New York, you now have to make $350,000 or more a year. You can certainly live on less, but it won't be easy for goals to raise a family, save for your children's education, save for your own home, and save for retirement so you can actually retire by a reasonable age. A middle-class lifestyle is a reasonable ask, but thanks to inflation, it's gotten a lot more expensive if you want to have children. The median wealth of middle-income Americans has stayed flat for years at about 87140 according to the Federal Reserve's latest survey of consumer finances. Yet, prices for things like houses and college tuition have risen tremendously. In some major cities like San Francisco, the public school system starting in kindergarten is based on a lottery system. So even if you pay tens of thousands of dollars per year in property tax, your child's not guaranteed a spot at your neighborhood school. So he goes through, goes through who makes $350,000 a year. Do you know that a Bay Area rapid transit janitor makes $234,000 plus $36,000 in benefits? I'm in the wrong business. Mary's a Bay Area rapid transit elevator technician who makes over two fifty in salary and benefits. Together, they make well over three fifty. Starting total compensation for recent college graduates, employees at Facebook, Google, Airbnb, and Apple are from between one hundred and twenty to one fifty. By the time they turn thirty five, their total compensation alone can surpass three hundred fifty thousand. A thirty something first year associate in investment banking earns on average a base salary of about one fifty plus twenty thousand to one hundred thousand in bonuses. After five years, a total compensation of 350000 should be achievable, he says. 20-something first-year big law associate makes a big base salary of up to one ninety, plus a $20,000 signing bonus. By the end of their seventh year, many are making over $350,000. Uh, he goes over, goes over a couple others here. Man, he then, by the way, breaks down some of their expenses and... As Sam likes to stir the pot, as you know, OG, some of his numbers are a little questionable, but there's no doubting this. This is what I wanted to get into. Where you live can change everything about whether you're financially successful or not. There's a common theme that I've observed over the last few decades of of doing this work, which is the people who 
keep their lifestyle expenses in check. And the primary one of that is consumer debt and their house payment as their careers continue to grow are the ones that become faster and faster at becoming financially independent. And I wonder, especially in the big cities, you know, you're talking about San Francisco or New York. And I saw a similar piece, I think, on CNBC. We might have even talked about it a year ago about how if you're making half a million in Manhattan, you're yeah, that dead couple. Broke. Remember that couple? Yeah, yeah. yeah you're dead broke. You and make those, and those, 500 and you ain't got any money. And those numbers were a little suspicious too. And I think, by the well, way, that, you know, I think that the, was I think that was also Sam. It might have been, but I mean, it's got the whole like you know you need 50 grand to send your kids to private school, it, and you need it did you make, make some, donations to yeah. the to charities to get in with the cool kids. So that's another hundred grand and stuff like that. Yeah, it know, still made like some good points, even though the numbers were. And by the way, when he looks at mortgage plus property taxes here, he's uh, looking at uh, nearly six thousand dollars a month to live in a city like San Francisco. Right, and you cut that number. You cut that number off of a, a $350,000 income. That three fifty, he he then says net income ends up being about two twenty three, So about $18,600 a month. You take $6,000 away from that. I mean, that's that's a third. Right. Well, and then and I just kind of wonder, I, I think people that live there might say, well, yeah, in order for me to make the three fifty, I need to be in the city or near it. Ergo, I need to be writing the $72,000 checks to have the house, you know, is it a chicken or the egg thing? And there's some, you know, there's some weight to what happens if you go do your job in insert town in middle America, you know, where the cost of living is a little bit lower. Yeah, you'll make a whole lot less. You know, you're not going to make three fifty dollars as a subway janitor in Des Moines, Iowa, you know, you, or you, whatever. You got to find the subway first. It's going to be step one. You're not the subway. You do a lot of door knocking in Des Moines. Where's the subway applications? Well, well, and they'll take you down and you're a sandwich artist. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) You know. Could you imagine somebody applies to be the the subway person and they're like, "Uh, I think I'm in the wrong career. Do the mass transit, you know. Well, uh, and to your point, I've had lots of discussions with our, our friend Farnoosh Tarabi who has the great So Money podcast, and she's in Manhattan. And she talks about a lot of the reason for success. Now, she's also a very polite person, and she's gracious about going, well, you know, it's just, uh, I'm just, no, 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 Farnoosh works her butt off. And she is great at what she does. But I do agree with her. She said that a lot of her success is that she's where things are happening, right? Yeah. Now, she puts herself right in the middle of it in a way that other people don't. And she's skilled at doing that and working with others. But you look at the opportunity she's had, a lot of it is because she's in Manhattan. Right. And therein lies the, in this case, $350,000 question. Well, and I think what that brings up then is for the person who's just starting out, if you can solve this. That solve riddle me this. If if I can get that high income job, but live in the city that's not so expensive, there we've got it. But that's a tricky tricky place to be, or just be okay with not having all of the stuff that is required from day one. You know, so you happen to get the great job that's the big high income job. You also don't need the million dollar mortgage with it. You get the trade off. You know, you got the big income. You don't need to, it's like people that have cars in New York City. Like you have great transportation. That's part of the, that's part of the benefit of living in such a great community is that you have so many options for transportation. You don't have to have an automobile. So cut out the unnecessary things. 
and use that to your advantage. Like use it as a, as a win, not a net, net break even or net loss. Our second headline, speaking of friends who are in Manhattan, written by our friend uh, Veronica Dagger, who works the Wall Street Journal, of course, is also the host of uh, Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women. Uh, she was on the show, as you know, recently. Veronica wrote this piece in the journal, clients want to work with female advisors and firms are taking notice. It says women are minority in the wealth management business, making it difficult for clients who ask for female financial advisors. She says, over the past two years, Jane Schwartzenberg, head of strategic client segments at UBS Group's uh, U.S. Wealth Management Unit, has seen a marked increase in requests from prospective clients who want to work with female financial advisors. It's not that women make better advisors, says Ms. Schwartzberg, who oversees the firm's marketing efforts to women, business owners, and wealth inheritors. It's that prospects are now more vocal that they want diversity from the people they get advice from. In part, she says, societal conversations about gender issues are prompting these prospective clients to speak up about their preferences. Financial advisory firms are responding to client demands. At UBS, one of the biggest U.S. brokerages, the ranks of female financial advisors have increased to 20.9% of its total advisory workforce, or 2,183 advisors from 186 in 2011, the firm said. This piece goes on and I'll link to it, but it's just, it, oh gee, it's more of the same. What I want to talk about here is, okay, that's an increase, but 20% of the entire field of advisors is still only women. That's that, that number's woefully, still woefully small. So I guess, how do we, how do we motivate people to join our, our calling, our profession? I don't know. I'm glad that it's it's up. And you remember you and I did a headline a while ago about how female advisors lately are really rocking. And the reason is, is that female advisors are more likely to want to be holistic, where a lot of male advisors still stuck in the macho days of stock jock. And, you know, and I think that also yeah. has, by the way, less to be about being a man than to be about the fact this has been a male oriented field historically. And a lot of advisors are aging. And frankly, back in the early nineties and eighties, that was the game and the game right. has completely changed. But, but I like this idea of, of holistic. I also like this idea of, you know, kind of like on the show, we try to have guests that come from different, age ranges, different points of view, different backgrounds, certainly different genders, different races, because people tend to respond to people that are more like them as an entry point into anything. And so to have a more diverse workforce in uh, financial planning, I think that's only good for everybody. It's a great thing. Well, and I, you know, I see a lot of the, uh, the training programs also becoming more and more accepted in academia, you know, you see more and more universities having financial planning courses, financial planning degrees, trying to get students to explore that. You know, when when you started, when I started, the financial planning uh, requirement was, could you come up with a list of 100 people that you can call the day we hire you? Like that was your barrier to entry. And if you could fog a spoon, like those were the two, the two required. And in my case and in yours, I'm sure you remember this. Do you, do you remember writing a check to join American Express? I do. You know, do, I do. I, I remember was so geeked about that. I'm like, I got hired and it's only five grand to start. <laughs> 
I do remember that. <laughs> now it's like the first time you thought about that in 20 years, isn't it? I know. Like you, you come home, you're like, I got it. I got the job. It's awesome. Also, I got all this paperwork to fill out. It's going to be great. I need, um, I'm going to need five grand because that's what it's. I remember when I first became a training manager and I told my dad because I was working in an organization that no longer exists there, which, uh, by the way, they all kind of got yeah. flushed out, these people. I won't go into it too much, but, but I remember going to my dad saying, Hey, I got a raise. I'm a training manager now. I got a big promotion. He's like, oh, cool. So you're making a lot more money. I'm like, no, the cool thing is they're not paying me at all. I'm getting a lot more experience. My dad's like, you're getting ripped off. No, I'm not. Well, this yes. is awesome. <laughs> this is exactly, this is like, this is the path. You do not get it, dad. I'm getting five years experience in one year. I'm in yeah. so many meetings, which by the way, was true. true however, absolutely. However, a sales job, right? <laughs> <laughs> sold me completely. Here's but it, the Kool-Aid. But, but now, but now, thankfully, our profession, the financial planning profession, is much more serious. You've got professional designations like the CFP, which is, you know, they're they raised our dues by threefold, I think, over the last decade, hoping to legitimize the designation and hoping to allow consumers to recognize there's a difference between holistic financial planning and you know, a broker relationship, you know, that you might have, but more and more as it becomes more of an accepted profession, I think we'll see more, uh, universities and college programs make that a legitimate path during college. And you're finding, and I'm finding, of course I hire people. I'm finding that people are coming to the table with actual financial planning experience in, in our conversations. It never comes up with, well, but who else do you know in your network? Right. You know, it's like now now we're evaluating people based on their relationship experience or their expertise around a specific issue or a a series of issues. You know, how well can you solve this this problem? So, um, yeah, I'm excited by it. I feel like Wall Street, obviously, you know, for better or worse, and some guests we've had on have had a lot more experience here talking about how. Uh, Wall Street, so male dominated and very much being like a men's locker room culture. Uh, I don't feel that in the holistic financial planning areas, OG. Even at the end of my career, I remember going to meetings that were uh, full of uh, CFPs. I never once had that locker room feel. So it's got to be 10 years later. It's got to be even more, I would imagine. When you go to these meetings, hopefully it's it's more diverse but it's also hopefully much more um, of an inclusive culture. Do you feel that? Uh, yeah, it's been a couple of years since I went to an industry conference. You, you can only take them so much at a time. You, know, you need a little bit of a break. <laughs> Don't do that while I'm drinking my but, tea. Uh, a, um, but the last one that I went to was sponsored by TD Ameritrade Custodian that we use and you know, pretty well-known name. They had a whole group of students who they were sponsoring to be there to both interview, you know, if you're looking for somebody like here's a pool of talent basically, but also like to introduce this next generation, so to speak into, you know, here's the stuff that goes on. You know, this is, this is the technology that we're looking at considering. This is, you know, some of the breakout sessions that people think about or the advanced planning techniques that come up in conversations, actually heading to another industry conference in another couple of weeks. So I'll be happy to report back. I suspect it's still going to be very, 55 year old Ab- yes you know yes. man in a blazer and the, white uh, dude well that's the other so. thing i wanted to say is that oh gee people of color i mean 
African-American advisors, not nearly enough. There's a huge underserved population there. There are not enough people who look like their client in that area. Also, Latino advisors. You know, I'm in a, a mastermind group with Jen Hemphill, and she's incredibly passionate about that as as a coach, not as a financial advisor, but just as a financial coach. She's incredibly on top of that problem. There are these huge communities that this isn't about, oh, gee, this is not diversity about checking boxes, right? This is diversity f- to help people more easily, more easily see people that look like them talk like them might be from their background, whether it is age, gender, race, whatever it might be. It just makes it easier if it's a wider field of people that people are learning from. Can't hurt. Yeah. I agree. In just a second, OG and I will have our big takeaways from today's from today's headlines. But one big takeaway is no matter what your background, if you're running a business, you know how difficult it is to get capital and how many strings are often attached to capital. So thanks to ClearBank for supporting Stacking Benjamins. ClearBank is changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. It's so frustrating to see somebody that has a great idea and has a phenomenal business plan. And speaking of that, well, how many times have we seen this with women in business? I read about this nonstop. Woman has a fantastic business plan and the old school ways, they don't want to give her money. But regardless of that, ClearBank makes equity-free investments from $10,000 to $10 million. They can get you a term sheet in less than 20 minutes. What happens is you apply in minutes. You enter your basic business info and link your marketing and your revenue data. You choose a desired marketing budget from a lot of different options that they give you. Then you watch your revenue grow as you acquire more customers with your new marketing budget, which is bigger and stronger because of ClearBank. ClearBank is also prepared to offer you more capital as you grow. They charge a small flat fee for the capital and you pay them back using a win-win revenue share. And it's not a loan, no interest rate. There's no fixed maturation date, no personal guarantees, no credit checks. If you've run, if you have run businesses before, you know exactly what I'm talking about with all those. They don't ask for equity in the company. They don't want a board seat. They don't want to take it over. 2018, by the way, ClearBank invested over $150 million. This year, they're on track to invest over $1 billion. So you can see how fast they're growing to help people like you. ClearBank has relationships with marketing agencies, e-commerce professionals, venture capitalist accountants, and more, which will give you a true advantage in the market because it's not just about the money. It's about them helping link you up with people who make business easier. I just started, OG, this coaching program that you're very familiar with. Half of the win of this coaching program was the coaches. The other half was the access to all of these other entrepreneurs going through the same thing I'm going through. And that's what ClearBank does to help their customers. If you're doing over 10000 a month in revenue, find out how you can receive ClearBank capital by getting your 20-minute term sheet at clearbank.com forward slash SB. Bank is spelled with a C at the end. So that's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C.com slash SB. Stop pitching. Get back to work doing what you love, growing your business. I think our big takeaways are male or female advisors. Yes, please. More. More in this area, I think, equals better. And then I think our second takeaway, trying to solve the riddle of high expenses and job prospects. Well, if you can find a way to live in a place with less expensive housing and a lower standard of living, 
and bring in the revenue, I think you've solved the puzzle that we all want to solve. Colleen Bordeaux, Upstairs Talking to Mom. She is a best-selling author, speaker, and a human capital consultant based in Chicago. This woman, OG, has been published everywhere. The Chicago Sun-Times, Huffington Post, and I got to say, her new book, Am I Doing This Right? I saw the book and I thought, you know what? If this is written the way I think it's written, just based based on the cover, this is a book I needed when I was 25. And that I probably would have needed again in my mid-30s when I was rethinking things. And maybe even at 40 when I sold my business. She is so good at thinking through life transitions. And it's all here. And am I doing this right? So let's talk about maybe getting it right. Colleen Bordeaux coming down to the basement. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's her new friend, Colleen Bordeaux. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm fantastic now that you're here because you're going to make everything right in the world for us today. No pressure, Colleen. No pressure. (laughs) Happy to do it. Happy to do it. (laughs) Well, you start off early in your book with this theme that is a little disturbing. You talk about this idea of regret in the introduction and about a study, I think that a nun did, correct me if I'm wrong, and about how old people on their deathbed, they feel this they feel this big sense of regret about their life. Why, why is that? Yep. The study that you're referencing is by a, a nurse who's named Bronnie Ware. She was an Australian hospice nurse, and she observed thousands of dying patients at the end of their lives and observed that there's a common theme or common thread to those regrets. And she buckets them into top five, the top five regrets, regrets with the number one regret being that I wish I had the courage to live a life true to who I am instead of the life that others expected of me. I mean, reading that book, if you if you read it yourself, it is the saddest concept to think about, that you have this kind of one shot and to get to the end and realize that if you had just made a simple change in how you thought, you could have had a very different path. So It was a punch in the gut. Like I'm just reading the introduction to your book and it was like you hit me right in the stomach. <laughs> immediately. But don't get me wrong. It's a good thing because, well, you had what you call a quarter life crisis, which kind of was about this very thing. I think, was it about, am I living the life I want to live versus what everybody else wants? Absolutely. I felt that when I graduated college, I went from this very predictable milestone driven life with consistent feedback loops that I was doing a great job to this abyss in the world where no one is telling you where to go or how to live your life. It's all up to you. I started to realize that I was looking externally at everything that I was supposed to be doing and kind of ending up in a miserable place. So it led me down this wormhole of exploring why that was. And if you look at people who live really fulfilling lives and do things that matter, they all kind of got to this point of looking inside of themselves instead of to the external world to figure out what they're supposed to be doing. This has got to be universal because this wasn't just you. I had nearly the same thing. Mine was, and I got kind of lucky. I was... 17. And I was part of this Catholic group that helped our diocese, our 
area kind of manage the church. And so it was the Diocesan Committee on Youth. And as part of that, I became this youth leader. And so we spent a lot of time sitting around examining who we are and what we believe and kind of what we do. And I remember I was a person who looked for these external, um, you know, external love, I guess. Uh, am I good enough? Do other people like me enough? And of course, that's high school anyway, right? That's to- totally. <laughs> that's totally high school. But I remember something that I think a lot of people didn't have happened to them, which was early my senior year. This guy, Tom Holcreve, Tom, if you're listening to this, I'll throw you under the bus because it was you. Uh, <laughs> Tom, Tom, all these years later, I'm 51. I haven't forgiven Tom. No, Tom's fine, I'm sure. But Tom, I remember, always wanted to make sure that I was kind of under his thumb and that Tom got to approve of everything. And there was one day, Colleen, that I realized I don't give a shit what Tom thinks. Like, it doesn't matter. It just didn't. Right, F Tom. It just didn't it matter. matter. <laughs> it was, and it was so liberating once I realized that what I thought mattered. And it sounds like early on you got that kind of a like big aha. Yeah, you know, I don't know if mine was as much of an aha. I think it was a little bit of a longer journey, but I do think that recognizing that other people's opinions don't have to matter. What makes them matter is when you listen to them. And that is a, like a novel concept and something that I think we don't talk about enough in yeah. our culture. Yeah. Everybody's going to give you their opinion, right? hundred percent. Yes. Everybody. Yes. Like all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm reading in your book, by the way, how many different people gave you different opinions, like the person from the Ivy League college telling you that oh you should <laughs> bury your, your middle of the road school and, and go Ivy League and how that stuff can send you down a wormhole. But you talk about this wormhole of self-development and you say that it went seven years Tell me about that. Was it books? Was it videos? Was it podcasts? It was almost entirely books. I got to this place in my life, in my career, where everything was kind of imploding. And I was probably the most miserable and anxious I've ever been in my life. Well, tell me about that for a second. What? How was it imploding? Like, take me to that time. So I was newly married and working 80% travel job on a project in suburban Philadelphia and surrounded by so much negativity. And I was eating terribly, drinking too much, not taking care of my health overall. I was so in such a bad and negative place and also in a position where I was blaming everything around me except for myself. I was having a little bit of trouble at work related to that bad attitude and started to look for another job because I felt as though my situation was hopeless. And so I found a job and I was about to take it and talked to a close mentor of mine at my firm who said to me that you can take this job and end up in exactly the same situation. What are you going to do to prevent it from happening again? And she highlighted that the problem was actually me and the way that I was thinking and handling myself. And somebody somebody else at the exact same time almost recommended Eckhart Tolle's book called The Power of Now, which is all about focusing on the present moment because it's actually insane. He says it's insane to focus on things that happened in the past or things that will happen in the future because you literally cannot influence them. And so I read it And I totally recognized that I was going about my life in all the wrong ways. And then I read pretty much every book that Eckhart Tolle recommended from there and then kept going. 
It's like you designed a curriculum then uh, yourself instead of waiting for somebody else to do it. Yeah. But I was from a point of pure desperation. Yeah. It's funny. I did something similar in college. I started taking all the philosophy classes I could get. I started off with psychology because mm-hmm. I was like, why does everybody seem so messed up? And then, <laughs> and then I realized it had more to do with philosophy than psychology. And then I also realized that my own personal philosophy, I didn't really have one. And I wasn't, I was just kind of going wherever the wind blew. And, um, and, and yeah, instead of having these guideposts. So you designed this curriculum then. So then what changed? Did you keep the job? Did you move on to a different job? I kept the job. I literally changed my personality. And I think you can do that. I think I went from this like really gossipy, negative person who sort of sucked at life and started to recognize that like as those negative thoughts were coming up, I was responsible for choosing whether or not I could let them sink in and act according to them. So I kept the job and I shifted how I was operating on that particular project, navigated off of it and stayed. And it helped me to get promoted multiple times and really grow a career that I'm really proud of today that is almost something that I didn't think was possible. And I do credit it to that that moment where I almost left and then recognizing that you know, ultimately everything is up to me and I can use my thinking as a tool to get me where I need to go. You read these different books in an order that, you know, to some degree it was this book led me to this book, led me to this book, but also then there's a kind of a randomness to that path, right? Mm -hmm. If you were talking to one of your readers or one of our listeners and you could say, start with these ones, like these were the big rocks in this universe that really were the most helpful, what would you say the top two or three would be? This is the hardest question I think you're probably going to ask me because people come at this question or this like, I I don't know what we're calling it, a crisis, midlife crisis, pivot point in life, kind of in much different places. But I do think that this kind of foundational idea that you have to recognize that your, how you think about who you are And what happens inside of your own mind is the most important factor in determining your life outcomes. And there's a couple of amazing books that talk about the concept of of identity and self and how you start to reframe your impulse to constantly reference externally and start to look inside. I think number one is The Master Key System by Charles Hanel. It was written in the 30s. And is a book that I read years ago, but I think about it probably once a week. Hmm. And it starts out so logical, you can't help but find yourself nodding along. And he gets into the topic of identity and spirituality and explains it in the most pragmatic way that you will probably ever hear. I think it's a must read for anybody who is looking to take control over how they think about themselves in the world. But also beyond that, it seems like, Colleen, what you were saying earlier is, and I don't know where this quote comes from, but as the student's ready, the teacher emerges, then beyond that. Exactly. It's almost the idea that the questions that come up in your mind, I think, are like what's top top of mind and front and center around the problem that you're trying to solve. And a lot of times we don't even really know what the problem is. We just know that there's something that's pulling us towards this particular question or this particular topic area. And I think kind of following that impulse is really important. You have seven questions you say people should ask themselves. What's the first one? Who the F am I? Why, <laughs> why is that? The way that we think about 
who we are and our value and our worth is a foundational topic area of living a fulfilling life. I think there are so many people, especially in our world today, where we're constantly on, we have the ability to reference other people's lives through social media kind of 24-7. We forget that we have a choice in how we think about who we are and that we can rest in ourselves and kind of our inherent worth and that all of that other stuff happening around us doesn't matter. And I think that until you get to a place where you're able to really understand that and rest in yourself, you can't build a life that truly matters in, in a way that is unique to who you are. But it's funny that we don't start that way, though. I mean, I mean, we start off as these perfect, confident beings. I just look at my kids as an example. I mean, I, you know, I talked earlier about myself, but, but, you know, my son was a super confident, very confident kid. He had this laugh we called the Senator, just this belly laugh, but it also <laughs> sounded like he was totally running for public office and he was so, and then you saw him get to school and he kind of got beat down at school a little bit. And then you saw him over the years kind of rebuild it. Yep. I think that idea of the self that we're born with is actually our inherent kind of worthy self is a very real thing. And this cloud comes over that inherently worthy self as we start to look around and assess our relationship with the world in a, in a different way. We start to feel judgment and compare ourselves. And I think what's really funny, and I, I mentioned that The Master Key System by Charles Hanel is like the first book I would start with he introduces the idea that there's actually two of you. There's your animal brain or constantly thinking self. And then there's this higher self that has the ability to direct what's happening in your mind. And Hanel talks about this as if you were to press pause on your mind right now, you can actually think about what was going on in there, right? You yeah. can do it. Anybody can do it. It's like, we're, so, it's like we're almost the puppet master of ourself. Exactly. And I think it's a brilliant kind of frame for getting back in touch with that innately worthy self you're born with. Because as a baby, you actually haven't like developed the muscle to even start judging or referencing. And so that kind of constant voiceover or, or narrative that we do inside of our own heads hasn't developed yet. And when that starts to develop, it starts drowning out, I think, this higher self or voice of the higher self that we are responsible for tuning back into. I like how you talk about how, Hey, I like to eat Play-Doh. And then you learn that that's disgusting. <laughs> and then you start, Play-Doh's I, great. I'm sorry. It's so salty. Great texture. <laughs> I, I so laughed when you wrote that. I was like, it just caught me off guard. A, men, a mentor of mine, uh, an early mentor of mine talked about something on this, on this note, which was, he called it the power of being five which I think is kind of congruent with what you're saying. He's like, remember just before you went to kindergarten, how you're five years old and you either wanted to be the president or a firefighter or something really cool. He's like, how do you get, go from there to being 24 years old and you're hoping for an incremental raise of 4%, <laughs> you know, there's been this beat down over these years. He's like, we got to go back to being five. And it sounds like that's what you're saying. Totally. And it's not like that you have to completely detach yourself from the realities of the sure. world. But I think right. in terms of how you how you think and operate just to shed all of the bullshit that you've collected over the years, that's been kind of clouding the way you think about yourself and the possibilities for your life. 
In every chapter, you talk about how you struggle with each of these themes yourself, which was, uh, I hate the word authentic, but (laughs) I do. I'm just like, so you need to be authentic when you're an Instagram influencer. (laughs) But you write about this. E. Cummings, one of my favorite poets, you, you read about this, I think you say in eighth grade, but the quote is this, to be nobody but yourself in a world which does its best day and night to make you like everyone else means to fight the hardest battle any human being can ever fight and never stop fighting. To hear that in eighth grade, when you're in the midst of puberty, just like the best time to hear that, that quote. Totally. And I had a eighth grade language arts teacher who gave that to me. I think it was the last day of the school year. And it was the biggest for anyone who's a teacher, by the way, I commend you and want to, I don't even think this teacher would know my name. Her name is Kelly Dittmars and I have not kept in touch with her since eighth grade, but she, I think recognized that I was this super awkward, nerdy 13 year old who was lost and about to go into high school and you know, I, I carried a violin case to school every day and I had pretty much all of the hobbies that would make you not cool as a middle schooler. And I think she recognized that I needed to be told that it's okay to be different and it can be a gift and to use that. And even though I didn't necessarily internalize or believe it at the time, I remember that poem sticking out to me and I saved it. It kind of served as this, I don't know what the word is, like rock for me during high school. As I started to feel different or out of place, I would kind of go back to that conversation I had with that teacher and back to that poem. And it kind of gave me like the little boost that I needed to just stick with what felt right to me. This wouldn't be a money show if I didn't fast forward from chapter one of your book up to chapter six, which is, which is, (laughs) is, is the one about money. By the way, out of seven questions you have to ask, money is number six. Why does it come so late? One of the challenges with even putting this book together was that sequencing piece. And I do talk about how they kind of build on each other. But I think that the money thing is huge. It's in many ways a tool that helps us to fulfill our potential and an absolute necessity in life. But I do think that your ability to to earn money, to add value and know how to adequately manage it is in many ways contingent on some of those previous questions having been answered and your approach and mindset around money kind of is impacted by how you think about those other questions. Yeah. If you don't know your why you're spending money on stuff that might be irrelevant. Exactly. You talk a lot about though, not about that. Once you finally get there, you talk about this idea of a scarcity mindset and there's a guy who we know very well uh, here in the community, James Altucher, who kind of was a punch in the gut for you. We talked about punching the gut for me earlier, punch in the gut for you. Tell me what James Altucher said that kind of changed your view. So first of all, James Altucher is amazing. I think he's built what, how many businesses? Like multimillionaire. I think it's he, a bajillion businesses. A bajillion businesses. Yes. Um, super amazing guy. And he talked in this interview about how he lost everything. And the reason he did that is because of the way he was thinking. He looked back at his history and his the way that his parents thought and operated around money and they never had enough and they're always like worried about going broke and he inherited that. 
And so even though he was able to generate wealth for himself, he lost it because his he wasn't thinking about it the right way. And he talks about how he reframed the way he thought about money as a byproduct of belief in himself, which honestly, like I say that out loud and I have goosebumps because I think that it is like a foundational principle of generating wealth. It's your your belief that you have something that is valuable to another person so much that they're willing to exchange energy to get that from you. Yeah. How exciting is that? I was just saying, how exciting is that? So exciting. Yeah. And and something that all of us possess, but don't always recognize. No. Well, especially when we just throw cash away, but you, you were somebody. And once again, going back to, you're very open about your struggle with this. You had the scarcity mindset. Totally. So my background, family background, I was certainly not from a poor family. I was, I was raised in a wealthy suburban Chicago to a litigator father and a stay-at-home mother, but they were extremely practical people. I had five siblings. And so they raised us in many ways, I think, to, I don't want to say like to believe that we were poor, but I think to kind of de-emphasize money. So I was in this very practical family, but surrounded by an extremely wealthy community. And I think as a child, I started to recognize that like, the way that like I can't keep up in certain ways and the way that you do is just by making more. And so I think it gave me this strange attitude or strange belief system around money that I had to address. That's funny. Well, I don't think it's that, that strange really. I mean, I see it all around me. People think if I make more, I'm better. Yeah. If, if I make more, I'm better, which is totally the scarcity mindset. Where did you have your aha? I married a CPA, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. <laughs> Like the most financially responsible man you'll probably ever find. And I was going to say, by the way, Colleen, not to cut you off, but talk about embracing your nerd right there. Totally. Absolutely. But also talk about going from wanting to be an astronaut to being 24 years old and, you know, (laughs) counting pigs on a pig farm as part of your audit process. (laughs) See, but some people, there's something for everybody, though, as you know. Brings them joy. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I think I had been scraping by, but definitely had some irresponsible patterns. And I was honestly at a point where I knew that I had an issue, but wasn't willing to address it. And my husband and I had that conversation. I think a lot of young couples have when you talk about combining your finances, getting married, I you know laid it all on the table for him. And he looked at me and said, how is it possible that you have made so much money and saved almost nothing? And it was like this embarrassing conversation for me to have because he was 100% right. And I had been almost refusing to stare at the facts around my behaviors with money in the face. Wow. What'd you do then? So I would love to tell you that I was so mature about it and just, you know, <laughs> completely made an about face and we lived happily ever after. But um, <laughs> I think I talk in the book about how we fought so much about that topic because I was very resistant to this idea of being put on a budget. And it took us a little bit of time to get on the same page and I think align both of our attitudes towards money and talk about our goals in building wealth and getting to a financially stable place. And I did a lot of reading and reflection on it. There's a great book by Ramit Sethi called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Sure. And we used a lot of his blueprint around that, which was very helpful. That's interesting because, and it's funny how themes continually come up 
in our show and uh, you talking about having both of you on the same page. We had comedian Paul Ollinger on, on Monday. And also uh, for everybody listening, Ramit's going to be here in two weeks. So he's on his way down to the basement again. Tell him I said hi. I'm <laughs> number one fan. He saved my marriage. <laughs> Fantastic. I will. I should open it. I should open it up with that. See if maybe maybe that's a new career for Ramit. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure if this whole thing he's got going on is actually going to work, Colleen. So <laughs> maybe that'll save his career too. You right? should totally do that. Yes. The book is called, Am I Doing This Right? A Philosophical Guide to Life in the Age of Overwhelm. Uh, not only was I blown away by the topics in this book and just my own, you know, process of trying to figure out who the F I am. Uh, as we, I'm, I'm going to kind of pull back the curtain on how we create our show. We take about five weeks from the time that we come up with a concept for a show to the time that it airs. And we have three producers on our show. And not only Taylor, who's our Wednesday producer is excited about this, but all three of our producers are like, I need to read that book. So everybody wants this book. Where do we get it? It is available exclusively on Amazon. Exclusively on Amazon. Yes. And people, by the way, can also find your writing at uh, ColleenBordeaux.com as well. And you've got a blog there and uh, you're you're very open, uh, but you're very authentic. (laughs) (laughs) How about your thought process, Colleen? Thank you. I try to be. And I agree. The word authentic seems Im- inauthentic to me. It totally oddly does. Enough. We need a new word. That's the new, we need real. A new word. I yes. know. I feel like I think about this a lot at work that, you know, when you work for an organization or big formal corporation, there's almost this like unsaid expectation that you have to fit this mold. And if there's part of you that's like a little offbeat or a little bit different, then you might get fired. And yeah. I think it's an unsaid kind of cultural thing, whether or not that's true as, you know, something to be explored. But I think I realized that we're here walking around on this earth to make connections with other people. And if you're not being real and you're not being honest about your experiences, I think you're doing the world a disservice because it limits your ability to connect with other people and help them solve their problems or even feel some relief that they're not alone in what they're struggling with. The moment I started to recognize that, my writing got a thousand times better. (laughs) Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And you know, this superhero thing's exhausting. First, I helped Joe's mom wash the dishes, and then I fed the cat. And now, I'm delivering you this incredible trivia question. Whew. Gotta, gotta take a breath. Gotta slow it down a little bit. I know, normally I do everything at lightning speed, but sometimes... You just got to take a little breather, have a little me time, so you can perform at peak performance. Yeah, that's redundant. Anyway, you get it. But I'll slow down long enough to clearly enunciate this next question. Which superhero is featured in the most comic book sales in 2018? Going to be back with an answer right after I figure out why my cape has so much static clink. So I got to tell you, when we started the Stacky Benjamins podcast, we didn't dream about all the admin tasks that come about. In fact, it's funny, offline, OG and I just talking about bunches of admin tasks and how even on the weekends, we can't stay away from them. It is so hard 
to stay away from all those tasks. Like, you know, the, the big thing I like is not sitting here talking to you about money and about fun. No, I like drafting proposals. I like contracts. <laughs> Filling out, uh, talking to the attorney, Tra- talking to the state for <laughs> payroll, tax liability filings. It's amazing. Shock it's of shocks. Of time. That wasn't part of our vision. I think it probably isn't yours. And that's why you need HoneyBook. Here's the cool thing about HoneyBook that I really like is that because it's online, I can get it wherever I need it. And it's so flexible. It's an online business management tool. It organizes all of my client communications, gets all of our bookings, contracts that we have with different vendors, invoices, our payrolls. It's all in one place, which it used to be scattered. No more. HoneyBook makes it simple to run our business better. You get professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation, so everything's on track, and it ends up, OG, making us look probably better than we should, which is always good, right? Fake it till you, you make it. always look better than you should. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, thanks to HoneyBook. I, I don't think HoneyBook wants us to, to, like, no, please, 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 no. HoneyBook makes it super simple to run your business better. They can even consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, use Google Suite uh, like we do, Excel, MailChimp, uh, Gmail. It's the number one choice for client business management for freelancers and business owners. Save time and do more of what you love with HoneyBook. Right now, how about this OG? About to drop a bomb. HoneyBook's offering stackers 50% off, 5-0. When you visit honeybook.com slash SB, Payments flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So either way that it fits your budget, go to honeybook.com slash SB for 50% off your first year. Honeybook.com slash SB. Hey there, trivia nerds back. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, going to save you from this podcast with something we lovingly refer to as my amazing trivia. Your question, Cape Crusaders, was this. What superhero was featured in the most comic book sales in 2018? The answer? Well, if you said my favorite, Spider-Man, good old Spidey, or uh, Stinky, as his good friends refer to him, that would have been close, but nope, he was second. With his issue number 800 of the Amazing Spider-Man series selling... 439,465 copies, but no, only good enough for second place. What was first place? Yeah, you probably guessed it. It was Superman. Yeah, the guy who fights crime in a suit that looks like underwear definitely left the phone booth behind last year because his likeness uh, sold in over 504,000 issues of number 1,000 of the Action Hero series. I'd love to stay here and chit-chat, but I hear distress from Joe's mom above. Sounds like someone needs a taste tester for the cookie dough batter. Had it be me, stay fresh, cheese bags. Huge thanks to Colleen Bordeaux for stopping by. And I have to say, I have to say, where was this book? When I was just a lot of coping going on a little earlier in my life, OG. And uh, even if you're not coping with stuff, I think we all know somebody who's coping with, uh, am I doing this right? 
you never thought that. You knew every single time, every minute you were doing it right. Every single time. Yep. Every. <laughs> it's like the uh, phrase that I've used recently and other people have used on me recently, which is confidence is what a person feels right before they learn all the facts. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you're like, maybe, maybe I should have had Colleen's book. Yeah. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, your loved ones and your time. I want to ask this. You and I both know how long it takes to do a traditional life insurance application. Haven Life's application is simple. It's online. There's not a ton of questions. You get very quick decisions. With all that time you save, OG, what do you do with all that time where you're not filling out life insurance applications? What can you do? You could paint a self-portrait. Of you in uh, your Superman outfit? Sure. Maybe. Think about that. You can either paint a self-portrait or you could be filling out life insurance. Immediately, I think of Costanza with this, with like the. (laughs) Yes. Uh, There, everything is actually simple. So you can spend more time with self-portraits, loved ones, and your time. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for your free quote to start the process. You'll see how easy that is. Uh, that's stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. And let's say hello to Nick. Say hi, Nick. Hey, Joe and OG. I've heard you both mention the importance of having buckets of money with different tax advantages. When you look at a client's accounts, was there a specific ratio between those two that you try to steer them to? Uh, I currently have close to a one-to-one ratio with maybe slightly more in my Roth accounts than in my 403B. I hope this question makes sense. And if it doesn't, I'll just settle for the ratio of mom's potato salad to her cookies you're eating for lunch in the basement. All right. Thanks. <laughs> potato salad. To co- but mom makes good potato salad. I love homemade potato salad. I it's t- actually probably one of my favorite like summer things. It isn't coleslaw, but it's close number two. Uh, no. I could do without coleslaw. No. Well, that's why you're wrong. Cane's has really good coleslaw. Cane's does. I've only been to, to uh, Cane's once. What? What? It's like they've, oh, the garlic bread with the chicken fingers. You can tell it's lunchtime, right? It's, it, it, I'm it's freaking starving. It's all breading. The canes is like all so breading. Good. I think I could chicken. Could I get 95% breading, please, with no, uh, 5% that's not true. chicken? No, I will not badmouth or allow you to badmouth raising canes in case they're listening and they want to sponsor the show with lifetime supply of sweet tea. And chicken fingers for me. Heard it here first, folks. When when OG leans in to the mic across from me and his eyes get really big, that's when you know it's a bridge too far. Do not muck with my chicken fingers, dog. I'm I'm I am I'm not saying another word there. What do you think about Nick's uh, deal here? It's the ratio of chicken fingers to water burger. Mm. That's that's the same ratio that you should have in your portfolio. Mm. <laughs> I'm listening. There's barbecue, chicken fingers, and Whataburger. What, what's, the, what's the ratio of lunch? What else do you need? One, one, and one. That's the way to do it. I don't know that there's a specific ratio. That's going to be unique to everybody individually. And, and all of this, what's interesting about it, of course, is that there's no way to figure it out. Because what are you trying to solve for? You're trying to solve for what is the most optimal tax solution in the future? Yeah, because really and, it's all about... Uh, it's, it's, nobody knows. It's all about what's optimal when you pull it out. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you're trying to guess on where tax rates are going to be 
and where your income is going to be where and where you're going to fall within those tax rates at some undetermined amount of time in the future. So where am I, you know, where's the best place to take money out in 2062 in retirement? Like, I don't know. Nobody knows, which is why we want a little bit of everything. The first thing I'd say to Nick is that we call it a triangle for a reason. Nick is talking about the two different types of tax advantages. One is where money goes in pre-tax and then you pay tax later. That'll be like a 401k plan, RRSP Canada. Huh? Uh, it could be any plan where money goes in pre-tax, traditional IRA versus something like a Roth IRA, some of those life insurance policies that are out there, uh, municipal bonds where money goes in after tax and it grows tax-free. Those are two sides of the triangle, but there's a third, which is flexible money. And I think a lot of times everybody gets so into optimizing every dollar, we forget about that third leg, which generally, OG, for for me, the question I get most often from people early in life is how do I maximize my tax situation? The one we get most for people later in life is how do I take the fact that I messed this all up and I don't have enough flexible money and try to try to make money more flexible? Yeah, I'd like to retire when I'm 50. All of my money is in my 401k. What do I do? Yeah. So I think I'd say this. Make sure you have enough flexible money for future goals. For me, that's number one. Number two, then, I think the younger you are, wouldn't you agree that if you can afford to do it, the more money in the Roth IRA and the better if you're young? Well, I guess you look at it this perspective. Under current tax laws, that money is tax-free for one million generations. Yeah. If you can afford the tax hit now. Which you can if you if you don't ever think about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it just, once you get past a certain amount of income, life expands into the money that you allow it to. And I understand that when you make a change, like if all of a sudden I need to save an extra $100 a month to reach my goals, you'll feel that initially, but you probably don't feel that over time. And so the same thing is true about the qualified plan. Should I contribute to my pre-tax plan or my Roth plan within my 401k? Yeah, if you're going to make a change, you're going to notice the change in your paycheck. But it's not going to be as bad as you think. And eventually your life will just adjust to it. And if it doesn't, you can always change it back. You know, none of these things that we've ever talked about are things that are irrevocable for the rest of your life. So if you're making a change from one to the other, just do it in stages. You know, say, well, I want to still max out my 401k, but maybe I want it to be more Roth than pre-tax. You know, so change 25% of it right now. I like the idea that... Taking some pre-tax now is a great way to say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about tax brackets later on. I'm going to take some of my money today. I'm going to go ahead and take the number one draft pick instead of playing for next year. Because uh, next year we have no idea what the climate's going to be like. Uh, well, and I mean, in all fairness, tax rates are pretty pretty low right now. Yeah, no, good point. All considering. So if you're going to pay taxes, maybe now's the time to do it. Maybe now's to do more, time to do more Roth. Uh, but definitely... It's a time when you should begin with the end of mind. Where have we heard that before? On this podcast. Only. TM. <laughs> now that now that Stephen Covey has passed away, we are claiming it. Fair use. <laughs> yeah, Copyrights expired. <laughs> it's ours I now. I don't I don't think I think we'll be hearing from their firm pretty shortly. Stephen wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Ours is Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. <laughs> His is begin which, with... The, which are all the same. Be pro-thinking in advance, number one. Begin with the, the part at the toward the tail 
where it all finishes up. You want to think about that first. That's number two. <laughs> Sharpen your katana. Your katana. Is it katana? katana? Think success, success. <laughs> That that one took me a second. That that was that was that was pretty good. Begin with the finish in mind. Yes. Begin with the finish you want. Yeah. So funny. Uh, thanks for the note, Nick. If you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. That's the way to get on the Haven Lifeline. That's what you can do with all that time, by the way, OG, when you're not filling out life insurance applications, you could be sending us a note and getting your greatest money show on earth. Haven Life, Stacking Benjamin's Tea. It's what you could be doing. Uh, that's going to do it for today. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us again on a glorious day. I know Doug's about to thank Colleen for stopping by, but thanks so much. What a fun interview. And I got to say, being able to do topics like today's makes it so, so fun to be in our business. Lastly, if you are somebody looking for great financial planning help in your corner, OG's firm is taking clients. So he and his team, the way to reach them is to head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and they will take it from there. And it's getting late in the year, by the way. So if you want in, I would uh, get a move on, as mom says, you know, we're taking out the trash and we're not really moving. Mom's like, get a move on. Not sure that that's the analogy that we want to use. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, man, you've got it from here. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Colleen Bordeaux. Get comfortable with what your philosophy is first and everything, including better money decisions, will flow from that. Second, searching for a financial advisor, man or woman, finding one that is holistic is usually a better bet because one part of your financial life often touches others and in ways you might not expect. But the big lesson? Don't talk to Joe's mom about fights between superheroes. Listen to this. She's adamant that Superman would win a fight with Spider-Man, which is just loony because oh, I, just, I can't even explain why. But worse yet, her friend Gertrude agrees. Yeah, she's wrong too. Gertrude, you're wrong. I'm telling you, Spider-Man wins every time. He's got webs, people. Webs, he can shoot all that stuff out of his hands wherever he wants. He's jumping from building to building. And Spider-Man can kick everybody's ass, I'm telling you. Plus, you know, he's younger, better looking, and that full face mask and everything. Check him out on my t-shirt here. I mean, anybody can see Spider-Man is dope. Special thanks to Colleen Bordeaux for stopping by. You'll find her book, Am I Doing This Right?, on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. You can also find out more about Colleen at her website, colleenbordeaux.com. Be careful, there's an X in there in her name. It's very tricky. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. So last time on Monday, I talked about, I don't know if I told you this, but I went to the Canadian Rockies and mm-hmm. Glacier. I don't know if I told you, I went to the American Sierras. Just, just before. Mm-hmm. Like you were flying home as I was leaving. I feel obligated to kind of put some closure on this because I was pretty public about how I thought I was going to suck. You were all over social media. And by the way, the beginning of the trip did stink. You told them the people organizing this uh, field trip for your child and others, that uh, there's no way you're getting out of San Francisco in the airport as quickly as they thought they were. And shock of shocks, you were correct. Yes, it appears as though we all underestimated the amount of time it takes to take a bus from San Francisco International Airport to Yosemite. The estimated time was four hours. It took us eight-ish, so it was uh, a little bit longer. Did the uh, stop it in and out. It's so funny because the tour guide, who is a rock star, by the way, his name was Will, just perfect with kids, perfect with adults. Nothing phased him. You know, it was just uh, just really, really, really great, great tour guide. He's like trying to explain in and out. And it's like, it's this California thing. And it's so amazing. You guys are going to love it. And this kind of this murmurs and, you know, and he's like, how come nobody's excited about in and out? And finally some kid goes, cause we have it in Texas. <laughs> and, and he's like, Oh, okay, cool. So anyway, we're stopping in and out for dinner. Um, I don't care. Even if- that process. Could you imagine 50 people walking into in and out burger to order? Right, like the chaos that that would be. He had it. He was like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Sixth grade boys in this line, sixth grade girls in this line, seventh grade boys in that line. And it was like groups of 15. Bam, bam, bam. Or 12. And it was like one order for that group. He grabbed a parent, which I was very reticent to participate. I was not a chaperone. I was a paying consumer. That's what I made everyone aware. But, uh, you know, he'd say, hey, you're in charge of the sixth grade boys. When their food comes out, you know, you take care of, and they, and in and out, it was perfect. I mean, it was awesome. So get to Yosemite middle of the night, you know, it was like 11 o'clock at night by the time I got there. Oh, so um, you didn't get to see all the stuff on the way in then you didn't get to see like coming into the Valley and we did on the way out, of course, yes. but no, not, uh, not on the way in. Cause that's just a and, great way. It's like, you know, when you get down there in the Valley, you're on your way on that road going in, mm-hmm. it's like going into odds. It's this whole, yeah. 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 We did get to experience the breathtaking views of the cliff that we were driving on um white knuckling with the bus on the way out on on the way no on the way in on the way out we're on the inside lane generally but you could really see that late at night how far down it was no but you could kind of notice that there was a light way down there (laughs) and you figured there's no guardrail (laughs) and pretty much nothing to stop the bus driver from sneezing and driving us off the cliff so yeah 
Um, I had the outside seat and every, so I, I do, you know, you kind of do that. You're doing those switchbacks, you know, you're winding around. If I'm like, Oh, we must be kind of going uphill. And I look, I kind of do the like cursory glance to my right. I'm like, Whoa, not looking uh, that way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, uh, anyway, so we spent, uh, spent two days in Yosemite. The weather was perfect. You know, everybody's like, Oh, it's so crowded. It's like, well, we were our own crowd. So I'm not sure. <laughs> like we didn't help matters, frankly. Stayed in the cottages at Camp Curry, which was fine. You know, it wasn't luxury accommodations, but it was doable. Food was fine. I got to tell you, now that you've been there, climbing Half Dome, one of the best hikes I ever did. We did not climb Half Dome. There's no way. we did find. There's no way. I'm I'm just saying, now that you've been there and you've seen like Half Dome. Excuse me? Like, (laughs) we mean there's no way. You were with a group of kids. You could climb Half Dome, Mr. I get offended that you thought that I thought that you couldn't climb Half Dome. Uh, yeah. I think you can climb Half Dome, big guy. You can climb whatever mountain you want, OG. Whatever mountain I want, yeah. <laughs> no, we did a some hike. I don't I don't even know the names of them, but we walked up and saw some waterfalls. It is looked it, amazing. Is that the Vernal Falls? So we got kind of halfway up there. Yeah, that was it. So we got about two halfway two-thirds. The kids were kind of getting tuckered out. A couple of the parents were like, this is why we're here, to go up there. And they you know, kept going. Um, but you know, it was just great. It was just really fun to be outside for so three beautiful. days. And then, um, then we went back to San Francisco for another two days. We had, uh, dinner at a food truck park, you know, downtown, which was kind of fun. And then, um, and then we did Alcatraz and the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, like, like every tourist thing that you could do in San Francisco, we did in two and a half days. You, you check know, the box. The Here's the big question. Cause you were talking to me about this. They were talking about time permitting, walking the Golden Gate Bridge. And you're like, there's no mm-hmm. way in hell we're walking the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Did you so, walk the Golden Gate Bridge? Personally, no. Some people did. Not the whole thing. Like to the first gate, so to speak, yeah. to the first spire. I have this really odd sensation, like weird vertigo sensation I from too. time to time. I do too. And it doesn't like, you know, I'm doing this flying thing, looking out an airplane window, doesn't bother me landing like doesn't bother me looking straight down off of a bridge not my favorite thing so well, i made it about two, uh, three quarters of the way to the first thing and i'm like yeah this is stupid i'm going back my <laughs> son's like what's wrong and i'm like i'm going back this is dumb just weird weird sensation oh good way to put it this is dumb i think this is dumb <laughs> not no i told my son i go this is the one you take one for the team we're just going back now yeah um, he couldn't but- gone without you um, yeah, there's so many people like, I didn't want him to like miss his, the group, you know, and that yeah. sort of thing. And we could yeah. see him. They were like right there, but I'm sure. like, okay, cool. So they're all standing there like peering off the edge. And I'm like, going, if I see another little kid peering off the edge of the golden gate, oh. puke, oh. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I get the same thing, like the Ferris wheel as the Ferris wheels. Yeah, I, don't, in motion, I don't do Ferris wheels when yeah. the, when the Ferris wheels in motion now, no problem that that baby stops. So they let people off. Whether mm-hmm. I'm a third of the way up, two thirds of the way up, or all the way at the top, I do not like it. Yeah. Yeah. Homie, don't play that. No. Nope. Don't like nope. it. Yeah. When we went to Chicago this summer, my my wife and son went and did the the big Ferris wheel on uh, Navy Pier. Navy Pier. Like I did. Yeah. Not, not like, a big fan. I like roller coasters. But that's because like, it's always yeah. in motion. I think yeah. it's the Airplane's motion. Airplane's fine. Just yeah. The, like this. The, the, nah. But if they park that roller coaster at the top of the big hill, you'd be like, nope. Well, they, you know, they kind of do as they're climbing. But that's the worst that part. Sensation. That oh, is the worst fun. part. No, nah, I don't mind that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But anyways, long story short, 
props to the tour company pleasantly surprised by everything there of course my expectations were so low to begin with it was easy but uh, i had a good shame even even the diva og liked it i mean i did have to upgrade my flight on the way home but well stackers the show might be over but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that i want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law eric who is such a giving person eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 